This is the Blaze Radio On Demand. Individuals and businesses with tax problems, listen carefully. If you owe over $10,000 in back taxes or have unfiled tax returns, we can help you take back control. The IRS is the largest and most aggressive collection agency in the world, and they can seize your bank account, garnish your paycheck, close your business, and file criminal charges. Take control of your tax problems now by calling the experts at Tax Mediation Services at 800-600-1645. That's 800-600-1645. 800-600-1645. Now, spreading freedom across the nation, this is The Buck Sexton Show. Team Buck, welcome to the Freedom Hut. Great to have you. As always, an honor, a pleasure, a privilege. Good to have you here with me. 888-900-3393. There's an anniversary today. I know yesterday was Martin Luther King Day. I find it interesting that we hear so much more Dr. Martin Luther King instead of Reverend, but that's as an aside. Pointed out to me by a friend, there seems to have been a change. I don't really know. Well, we could take some guesses. Yesterday was Martin Luther King Day, federal holiday. Today is a day of considerable historical note, and I suppose that's a pun. It's the 100th anniversary of the Zimmerman note or the Zimmerman telegram falling into British hands. Those that don't know, and I know many of you probably know well enough to stand up and and give a history class lecture on this yourselves, uh, but the Zimmerman telegram, as it's most widely known, was a proposal that asked that the German government in the First World War was asking Mexico if they would, upon the beginning of hostilities between Germany and the United States in the First World War, the Mexican government would declare war on the United States to try to bog us down and prevent the assistance mostly of supplies at first and then also of men and, uh, of men onto the Western Front because the Germans were going to be resuming unrestricted submarine warfare, just taking out all of the shipping they could in the Atlantic on the way to Europe. And the British blockade against the Germans had been quite effective. And so the Germans, in a rather devious move, tried to coax the Mexican uh, government into attacking the United States if there was going to be a war. This was one of the most momentous intelligence coups. This was one of the most important moments of uh, cryptanalysis, of decrypting a secret message uh, in history. There are those who will argue that the Zimmerman telegram wasn't as important as some people say. There, There is certainly a back and forth as to how much of an effect it had on sort of like when we're talking about the Russian hack of John Podesta's account in the DNC. Did it change the game? I think that when you look at the totality of what the Zimmerman note, uh, the Zimmerman telegram, also known as the Zimmerman note, what it did at the time, it was, even if it wasn't the prime mover or the prime motivator for U.S. entry into the First World War, it very well may have been the straw that broke the camel's back of neutrality. The U.S. was, under Woodrow Wilson, staying neutral in the First World War. 
he kept us out of war was, in fact, the slogan that Wilson ran on to uh, win a second term in office. So Wilson was supposed to be a hero for all of this. Uh, Woodrow Wilson, who is among, when you think of the worst presidents in history, uh, you have to think that this was uh, this is one of the guys at the very top of the list. Interesting that Princeton University, a very politically correct place, has the Woodrow Wilson School, despite the fact that Wilson was a a just a blatant racist. But he was trying to keep a neutral posture in the United States. Also, domestic political opinion in this country at the time was very divided. There were anti, there was strong anti-British sentiment. There was pro-German sentiment. There were a lot of German immigrants, large waves of German and Irish Irish immigrants into this country in the 1880s, around the 20th century, and in the early 20th century. And so they have, when you get a lot of Irishmen around, especially in the 19th century or the 20th century, you got a lot of anti-British sentiment. And clearly the same with the Germans who felt a kinship with their German countrymen. And there was still a lot of anti-Mexican sentiment in the United States as well. And I'll get into how that was capitalized on. But back to the intelligence aspect of this and also the propaganda component. I think you'll see that we'll pull some of these threads together and look at what's happening now in this country and the way that governments in the past manipulated public opinion with intelligence to great effect. And the Zimmerman telegram was an instance where the British, because they had cut the transatlantic cables that the Germans would have had to use for uh, communications, diplomatic communications, the British were willing to allow, and it's fascinating that the Germans couldn't figure out that. But the, keep in mind, this is the very earliest days of, of both telegraph communication and, and also of, of cryptanalysis as a real military discipline there had always been people that writing in code on parchment or sheets of paper but now code breaking in the 20th century became important and then of course in the second world war we've you may have seen the imitation game uh, the story of bletchley park the british precursor to our own nsa code breaking became critical and the enigma machine and the the role of code breaking in the second world war is better known, but the Zimmerman telegram is the best known instance of it in the First World War. The Brits were allowing the Germans to use uh, to use the existing telegraph infrastructure, underground, undersea cables, to send their diplomatic messages. Now, the Germans figured, we've just got this stuff coded, so that it is in transit doesn't really matter. They didn't realize that the Brits, in a little room called Room 40, Today, a hundred years ago, today. So we are on the 100th anniversary of this right now. And if you want a book recommendation, Barbara Tuckman, who did The Guns of August, which is a phenomenal book on the First World War, the first really outbreak of the, of the First World War, and what's known as the Battle of the Frontiers, one of the bloodiest periods in that war. Tuckman also wrote a, a sh considerably shorter, easier read, The Zimmerman Telegram. And she's an excellent historian on these matters. So if you're looking for a book on it, I'd recommend that one to you. But 100 years ago today, in Room 40, in the UK, these uh, cryptographers, these code-cracking specialists, came upon something. At a period when the U.S. seemed like it was going to stay out of the war, the Brits, 
or was, was certainly trying to stay out of the war and had for a number of years, the Brits found the following sent to the German embassy in uh, it was it was going from Berlin and then going to make its way to Mexico for relay to the president of Mexico. The decoded telegram reads as follows. We intend to begin on the 1st of February unrestricted submarine warfare. We shall endeavor in spite of this to keep the United States of America neutral. In the event of this not succeeding, we make Mexico a proposal of alliance on the following basis. Make war together, make peace together, generous financial support and an understanding on our part that Mexico is to reconquer the lost territory in, get ready for it, Texas, New Mexico, and Arizona. The settlement in detail is left to you. You'll inform the president of the above most secretly as soon as the outbreak of war with the United States of America is certain and add the suggestion that he should, on his own initiative, invite Japan to immediate adherence and at the same time mediate between Japan and ourselves. Please call the president's attention to the fact that the ruthless employment of our submarines now offers the prospect of compelling England in a few months to make peace. Signed, Zimmerman. Arthur Zimmerman, the foreign secretary of the German Empire. And that was sent to the German ambassador to Mexico, Heinrich von Eckhart. You can imagine when this was released, and they held it for a while for maximum impact, the Brits didn't want to expose that they had cracked the German code, and they also didn't really want everybody to figure out that they were reading all this diplomatic traffic. And so they held this and finally released it, I believe, in March, and the U.S. declared war on uh, Germany in April, the following month. So they had been hoping to get U.S. public opinion riled up. You can imagine that an, a, even a proposal from the German government Despite the fact that the U.S. had stayed neutral for the opening years of World War I, a proposal that sought not only to have Mexico stab the United States in the back, but also to carve up the territories of New Mexico, Arizona, and Texas from the United States and invite Japan in as well. Perhaps Japan wanted a piece of, of California in the Pacific Northwest. That this was even under consideration at the very top of the German government, of course, set the American people into a frenzy. Uh, there was a lot of outrage and anger over this. But the information was held and the information was massaged so that the sources and methods would be obscured and that the U.S. would throw its own military might into the Western Front of the First World War and suffer uh, horrific casualties alongside the Allied powers with us. Uh, so this was an enormously important historical event. World War One, of course, leads directly to World War Two, and the whole shape of the world as we know it, both geographically and, and historically and socially and economically, was in many ways set in motion and determined by those two conflicts. But World War One leads directly into World War Two for reasons that you all know. And our entry into World War One dramatically changed the path and future of this country. And it, at least in part, came from what you could call perhaps a, a dossier, a dossier that made its way into British hands, that British intelligence held, 
and then released not just to the American government, but also with the purpose of releasing it to the press because they really wanted to inflame American public opinion. Mexico wasn't going to invade the United States. They would have gotten their butts kicked, and they knew it. But that the the Germans would even think about this and that the Mexicans would somehow be brought into this as co-conspirators was enough to change the tide of public opinion. It was about perception. It was an information operation against the American people. Based in truth but nonetheless used for political purposes, used for a very specific end, in this case, getting the United States, the population of this country, to be willing to commit to a brutal and bloody war that before then, yes, we had been certainly hit heavily with the unrestricted submarine warfare of the Germans, but we had tried to stay out of it, and they wanted to affect the way we viewed the First World War. And this one note that I read, I read the entirety of the decrepit message to you, played a, well, a role, you can debate how large or small, but a role in getting the United States to commit to the First World War, which leads to the Second World War, which changes the world that we live in today. Governments and the people who work in them understand the importance of information, and they understand the importance of timing. And once they have certain bits of information, they are not above holding on to them and then releasing them in the public domain specifically to achieve a partisan end. There was a lot of anti-war sentiment in this country. There was some pro-war sentiment in this country. Wilson uh, and, well, the Brits, rather, wanted to change that. And those in this country who wanted U.S. entry in the First World War were willing to go along with it. And the media and the newspapers reported on it at the time. And it changed the course of history. But governments, whether the British or the U.S. and the media, play games with us all the time. This does happen. This is not a new thing. This is not a new phenomenon. They understand the impact that one bit of information can have. And the media, whether we're talking about Nixon or any number of other issues, thinks that they can bring down administrations and presidents with just one well-timed release of information. This is what the hope is right now with Trump taking office in just a few days. They want a Zimmerman telegram moment. They want something that will completely destroy this administration, that will force Donald Trump out of office, either through resignation or impeachment and removal by the Senate. This, that's the game that they're playing. And understand that you've got elements inside the government, whether they're elected or supposed civil servants, colluding with the media so that there will be a Zimmerman telegram moment for the Trump administration. They're trying to find one. They're trying to concoct one if they have to. A hundred years ago today, very important moment. Could you imagine being that British cryptographer sitting there when you finally realize what you have in your hands? Some little boring room in the UK? Change the course of world events. All right, team, much more coming. I'll be right back. This is the Buck Sexton Show. The Blaze Radio Network.
individuals and businesses with tax problems, listen carefully. If you owe over $10,000 in back taxes or have unfiled tax returns, we can help you take back control. The IRS is the largest and most aggressive collection agency in the world, and they can seize your bank account, garnish your paycheck, close your business, and file criminal charges. Take control of your tax problems now by calling the experts at Tax Mediation Services at 800-600-1645. That's 800-600-1645. 800-600-1645. Buck Sexton, the Blaze Radio Network. There's so much nonsense, dreck, crap, garbage. We could do this all day. Currently getting published with the Trump inauguration coming up at the end of this week. I saw this piece on on CNN.com, a website for which I have written numerous times in the past and still do from time to time if I feel like it. If I want to get really, really nasty, semi-literate emails sent to me by CNN.com readers. Uh, but here, here is a sampling of the sort of argument that is now being passed off as acceptable uh, from the left. Not even acceptable, I'm sorry, as fashionable. This is the sort of stuff that people are writing and saying and spreading. Trump is, a, is following the authoritarian playbook. And let me read you a little bit from this. In less than a week, America will embark on a new political experience ruled by an authoritarian president. Donald Trump won the Electoral College but lost the popular vote by nearly three million. So for every American who looks forward to the Trump era, there is likely another who fears he will lead us into ruin. OK, let's stop right there. Just because you didn't vote for Donald Trump doesn't mean you are, I hope, at least, I think this is a provable point, a hysteric who thinks that the president is going to, quote, lead us into ruin. Maybe you really believe in Obamacare. Maybe you really think that Republicans are all just this big secret society that are hoping to pull together an assault on women's rights or whatever the Democrat flavor of the moment is. Maybe you believe all that doesn't necessarily mean you think that Trump is going to, quote, lead us into ruin. That's a pretty strong statement. Uh, But she goes even further than that. She talks about loyalty to a person over party or set of principles. Uh, She then says that he has a penchant for aggression and serial untruth. Now, I have been willing to say, uh, I have been willing to say for quite a, a long time here, or quite a while since Trump's been something we've had to talk about that the guy does things that I don't particularly like. I don't say, I wouldn't say things the way that he says things, obviously, but there are criticisms that are fair and that are criticisms that are just meant to smear. And we've gotten into a cacophony of smears. It's just a constant, uh, a constant noise from the left as to how terrible and authoritarian and, and vicious he will be. I don't seem to recall any think pieces that were written when Barack Obama was just about to take office. I was living in D.C. at the time, and it was like carnival. I mean, people were just dancing in the streets, parties everywhere, lots of celebration. All these, all these first-tier music acts were coming into town and celebrities, and it was like Hollywood really did descend up upon D.C. for the first time, and other than, I guess, Obama's re-election the last time for quite some time. That was the that was the vibe then. 
The vibe now is we have an authoritarian and he's going to destroy us all. He's going to dest- he's going to lead this country to ruin. I-, I do recall Barack Obama coming into office with both houses of Congress or both sides of the Congress in his pocket. The Democrats controlling the House and the Senate and the president promising to fundamentally transform the United States of America. And those who now stand up and hold the little little copy of the Constitution that I've just discovered it in the last couple of months and want to warn us constantly about how the, the, the media needs to be standing up to Trump and needs to protect us from Trump. And they were they were silent when Obama came into office with much more of a, a sense that he was going to dramatically alter this country and to in some ways abrogate the Constitution and just replace it with a cult of personality and executive power. Those who now want to warn us about a cult of personality and authoritarianism in the Oval Office who weren't doing so eight years ago have no credibility. This is part of the problem we have right now with the media. Sure, some media organizations want to get back to their roots and start doing the sort of gumshoe journalism we expect from them, but it's too late. They were cheerleaders for eight years of Obama and then for the entirety of Hillary Clinton's just pathetically uh, corrupt and dishonest campaign. They were cheerleaders for her and they threw everything they had at destroying Donald Trump. So if you were lecturing us about authoritarianism eight years ago, maybe I'll listen now. But if fundamentally transforming America isn't scary to you, I don't know what else there is to say. The Buck Sexton Show on the Blaze Radio Network. Team phone lines are open 888-900-3393. Sponsor this hour is silencershop.com. Silencer Shop is the place to go to get a silencer as the must-have accessory for your firearm. Silencer makes shooting more enjoyable. It reduces the blast to a much more comfortable level. And with a silencer on your firearm, there are many advantages such as better accuracy and reduced recoil. And by the way, if you're going to talk about service, Silencer Shop has got you covered. Silencershop.com is just like buying local since your local dealer sets the price and makes the profit. So now you can get the best price and know you're supporting your local business. Sansa Shop offers the best selection of products from the top brands and tries to keep all the most popular models in stock. That's going to help you get what you want faster. So SansaShop.com is the place to go. Again, that is SansaShop.com. Help make the world a quieter place. Uh, do we have the audio of, uh, do we have any more audio of, um, not the DNI, of, of Brennan, CIA director, who's talking about how, you know, he's all upset that Trump said the mean things about the CIA. Do we have any of that? I might, I'm just guessing here if we might have it, but uh, we don't. All right, maybe we'll pull some in a few minutes. Uh, Brennan uh, is fighting is fighting back, according to the Daily Mail here. The CIA boss says the dirty dossier it really, guys, it was only a matter of time before that alliteration found its way into our daily lexicon, the dirty dossier. Woo. The dirty dossier. Sounds like a movie. Sounds like a movie that you could order in a hotel room, but then they have to tell you that it's, you know, adult only. The dirty dossier. 
um, didn't come from inside the Intel community, according to Brennan. And outgoing CI director Brennan claims he had not even read Le Dirty Dossier. Uh, and do people, I, I heard, I've heard a few anchors say Dossier. Is this, is this sort of like Notre Dame now? Is this the Americanization of Dossier that's happening right before us? Or are, are we going there? I, I know everyone's supposed to say Dossier, but I've heard a couple of Dossier. Hey, you got your Dossier? I got a Dossier right here. It's a dirty dossier. Uh, Brennan insists, back to this piece here, Brennan insists that he was not the one who leaked this. Uh, he said it was the FBI, not the CIA, that briefed Trump on its existence. I, I need clarity here. I need to know. Uh, I need to know. Oh, this was in a Wall Street Journal interview uh, that Brennan said that he was not the leaker of this. Brennan is known, as I told you, inside IC circles as a guy who leaks and likes to get the press thinking certain things he is a white house partisan this is not a career this is not a career civil servant without any history of partisan inclination Um, brennan says the dossier had been circulating for months and he said he had quote no interest in trying to give that dossier any additional airtime well i i need to know what exactly the purpose of including this in any briefing for the president was and who leaked it? Not who leaked the dossier. See, they, they love to get you caught up in the uh, in the specifics here. Not who leaked the contents of the dossier. They were already out there. Uh, but who leaked that it was included in a formal briefing for the president? And then why was that news? It was news because there's an implication that they're doing this specifically because they think there must be some truth to it. I even had people, journalists on Twitter from verified accounts, say, oh, just wait until they prove this. You really think they're going to prove this? Do you think that this thing is real? I, I hate to say it, but find it, I, you, know, you find that some of what Putin says on this is more believable than what some very revered journalists are saying and i know that puts one in a in a strange position but then again i've seen a lot of julian assange from wikileaks on fox news recently and i've seen a lot of glenn Glenn greenwald on fox news there's all sorts of realignments that are happening right now over these issues between the ideological right and left it's dizzying it is tough to keep up Uh, but Brennan also, because he understands that he needs to make this about how Trump is mean and is a bully and is a jerk, he says, quote, I found it very repugnant and will forever stand up for the integrity and patriotism of my officers who have done much over the years to sacrifice for their fellow citizens. Uh, Trump said that, when he said, what are we, in Nazi Germany, he didn't call the intelligence agents and officers Nazis. This this reminds me of the way that there was a, a transformation, and I should have spent a little more time, really, I think, on the John Lewis-Trump feud earlier in the week and right before Martin Luther King Day, that the way that it started to get covered or, or from the responses I was seeing online, there seemed to be this very abrupt shift and this changing narrative that went from uh, Trump said... Um, or rather, yeah, that, that that John Lewis said something mean about Trump, and then Trump responded, and Trump responded in a way that I think was unwise, but he likes to respond, he likes to punch back even harder, I get it. But by the end of the day, it turned into Donald Trump 
assails civil rights hero right before Martin Luther King Day for no reason. And on this CIA story, it's Donald Trump attacks the intelligence community and degrades the memory of fallen officers from the CIA. And that's not what this is about at all. And that's not what Trump has made it about either. But Brennan is trying to obscure things. Brennan is trying to make this all quite a bit more complicated. And by muddying the waters, by making things more murky than they would otherwise be, he has the latitude to shift the conversation away from who the heck included this dossier and why was it told to anybody who was going to leak it to the press that it was included to, oh, uh, Trump is standing on the is uh, standing on the graves, mocking the graves of, of dead intelligence officers. I mean, this is complete nonsense. The intelligence community is absolutely huge. It is vast. It is having been inside it. That's one of the things you have to get used to very quickly. You come to recognize that you are a very small piece in an enormous machine. You are just, you know, one of the Oompa Loompas in the in Willy Wonka's chocolate factory. I mean, there's a and there's a ton of them. There's a ton of them. Uh, I was one of them. So you get used to that idea real fast. You sort of have this thinking because if you watch James Bond movies, it's, you know, Bond, your reckless behavior. They've got M and got this cool British accent and he's wearing black tie all the time, which let's be honest, guys, black tie, it's just not that comfortable. He's driving around in Aston Martins, spending money at the roulette wheel in Monaco. No, you want to know what being, being an intelligence officer is showing up to a cubicle not an office, at least not for the first 10 to 15 years or so, showing up to a cubicle just bathed in beige and sitting down in an uncomfortable chair and hoping to have somebody from IT show up at some point to give you your passwords to access your programs and your email and and all the rest of it. And you start reading and going to meetings. That's what it's, yeah, there's cooler stuff, and I've told you about some of that, but that's really what the job is. But the notion that Donald Trump, who's clearly sparring with the political appointees like Brennan, like Clapper, who are at the head of these organizations, uh, the idea that morale is down in the CIA, morale's down in the CIA for a while because Obama doesn't think the CIA has that much useful information. Obama thinks he's no that he knows more about his policy, more about policy than his policy directors by his own words. It's true of Intel, too. Just likes to read the stuff, whether he pays attention or not, doesn't matter. Obama really is a know-it-all and always has been. Somebody who thinks that his knowledge and his experience and his wisdom greatly exceed what they are. That was noted in the intelligence community. People were always mocking Bush. Bush had a really crazy idea when he was president during the Iraq War. His idea was, I want the person who's the smartest on the issue to come and talk to me about it. I don't want someone who's pretending to be the person who's smart on the issue. Bring me the person who actually, don't bring me something someone else wrote and try to explain it to me. Bring me the person who wrote it. And that's how you get people that are as young as I was at the time going in to brief the president of the United States. Because other than that, you got somebody pretending to know what I know, reading what I wrote the morning before going into the president and briefing him. So Bush cared. Was that the right move? Did he take too much time? There's been all this analysis of this after the fact. Obama, it's, yeah, leave leave, leave it at the door, kid. See you later. So let's not pretend now that there's this Democrat reverence for the intelligence community. 
But some GS-10 or even a GS-15 or GS-whatever employee anywhere in the intelligence community isn't sitting around saying, I feel so bad about myself because Donald Trump said something mean about the leak. They don't care. It doesn't affect you. It doesn't change your day-to-day. It doesn't, look, doesn't hurt your health benefits. doesn't hurt your paycheck. doesn't do anything. And we all know this. Now, there is a possible reality where Donald Trump cuts back the intel community and reforms it, which would, I think, be a good thing if he did it with the input and knowledge of people who really know what they're doing. I mean, career intel officers that recognize that 20% of the people do 80% of the work and that you don't need the other 80%. Maybe you're not going to take them all and put them out on the street, but you can pare things down not necessarily backfill positions as people retire. There are ways to do this over time because it is just an unwieldy beast. It is vast. But the narrative is not that Trump is having a fight with political appointees who run these intel agencies, who, by the way, if they told members of the Senate that they were planning on telling the president-elect this, they don't have to do that. That's not how it goes. They don't have to, as I said, this could have all been on a phone call on a secure line from from Brennan or from Clapper, more likely, because he's the DNI, to the president about this dirty dossier. Oh, yes. Would you like to read my dirty dossier? It is many salacious detail. It is uh, very, uh, very enticing. The dirty dossier. We could have a lot of fun with this. I, I kind of want to start doing a Brennan segment. Yeah, another day of the dirty dossier. May we be in but yeah, that's not the way it's being presented. It's being presented as Trump spitting on the graves of dead intel officers. You know, Trump spray painting over the stars in the lobby at Langley. And it's just a lie and it's not what's happening. And that Brennan's playing in it goes to show you that he's a political infighter. He is a pugnacious partisan bureaucrat. It's what he does. And that's why he's distracting us with all this other nonsense. All right. Uh, phones are open, team. 888-900-3393. Also, Facebook.com slash Buck Sexton. We'll be right back. Buck Sexton. The Blaze Radio Network. Well, Tim, you can put this in the category that I, I always talk to you about of jobs that are really hard to get but easy to do and how we should be much less impressed by people who oftentimes their job consists of going to meetings, sending emails, talking to people. It's pretty much what the president does. Hard job to get, don't get me wrong, but not necessarily that hard a job to do. It's a hard job to do well, but it's not a hard job to just show up for. Uh, president Obama, I mean, how many of us are really that? impressed with jimmy carter you think of some of the people how many how impressed be honest how impressed are you with george w bush i i mean impressed not that he's a good guy and meant well for the country how impressive do you find him uh, okay but obama we got a final tally here in the uh two terms of his presidency he has played golf 333 times according to the washington examiner you know, there's a case to be made that when you're the leader of the free world and you're 
sitting on the gold mine of a $15 million book advance as soon as you're done, countless speaking engagements. I mean, Obama is going to, Obama and, and uh, Mr. and Mrs. Obama are going to be worth $100 million pretty quickly here. It's just going to be from, instead of selling access for, well, we'll see with the Michelle Obama if she's going to run or not, but instead of selling access like the Clintons, he's going to be sort of selling the Obama brand, which, you know what, this is American, he's allowed to do that. Fine. I feel it's very different than Obama is going to get checks for 500 grand to give speeches places. You know, Obama is going to be on the board of major companies where you get paid a lot of money to show up a couple of times a year. That sort of stuff. He's going to get $15 million for his memoir. Those sorts of things. That's is America, right? Capitalism. That's what the market will bear on this stuff. He's not necessarily, I don't see this yet, going to be setting up a fake charity and taking in $2 billion of donations and a lot of money for himself, as the Clintons did. So that's a different issue. But 330, 333 rounds of golf, I don't play golf. I've got a father who plays a fair amount of golf, and I just know from him and his schedule and whatever that's golf day, it's really a, it's certainly a half-day affair. I mean, it's four hours to play 18 holes, and by the time you get out there, you have lunch, it's a most-of-the-day thing to play 18 holes. So you can do the math on this, too. You look at this, and of the eight years that Obama was president, there was almost a year's worth of days that he spent playing golf. Now, I know that this, for some people, gets all sensitive, and we're not allowed to talk about this. I don't, I don't know why. He's being paid by the public. This is out there. This is not a made-up number. This is agreed upon. 333 days spent almost... Uh, what, are we going to say that the, there was a lot of work being done when he was on the golf course? Spent almost a year's worth of days, of work days, because it's at least four, five, six hours. So maybe we're going to say it's a half day, but on the golf course. Obama's, a, especially for president, a young, healthy guy. He's got a lot of time to play golf now. I think he could have cut it back a little bit, and I don't think that makes me a mean person or a jerk for pointing this out. I think a lot of us who sit around who haven't been able to take more than a week of vacation total in years, maybe you haven't even taken a week in years, feel like this is the leader of the free world? This is the way that he runs his schedule? Give me, I want that job. What, maybe being president isn't so hard. Back in a few. The Buck Sexton Show. Only on the Blaze Radio Network. Spreading freedom across the nation. This is the Buck Sexton Show. All right, team. Welcome back to the Freedom Hunt. We're joined by our friends, uh, our friend Vince Colonese. He is the executive editor at the Daily Caller. Read the latest there at thedailycaller.com. Vince, good to have you back, my friend. What's going on? So great to be here. Oh, not that much. Just pretty basic week in Washington. Yeah, there's oh, some stuff happening. Huge, we, there's the some things that we can discuss. You know, the people yeah, are doing the stuff. Uh, let's start with this uh, this piece you've got on the Daily Caller right now. I, I think it's your, I don't know if it's your lead, or it's certainly one of the bigger pieces on the front page. Never Trump Republicans shocked they can't find jobs in Trump's White House. Now, 
I am in favor of the smartest, best, most experienced people possible getting very important jobs in government. Mm-hmm. However, there are a lot of people that I think fall into those categories of very smart and capable and can do these government jobs. It is one thing, and maybe this will sound self-serving because I'm kind of describing myself, it is one thing to have backed another candidate in the primary. It is one thing to have stood aside and been like, I'm not going to support Trump, but um, it's not my thing. But to say, to sign your name, to say you will never, ever, ever support Donald Trump or take part in his administration, to put that out there publicly and to sign your name to it, and then to say, well, you know, it seems kind of unfair. I'm not getting a White House job under the Trump administration. Ah, are people serious? Uh, I, I thought never Trump meant never Trump. Yeah, no, you're right. And I don't think I don't think that there's a massive uh, upswell of those people uh, who are now chastened by the experience who are just clamoring to get jobs. Of course, you know, Washington runs like this where, you know, you want to have access, you want to make money, you want to be useful, especially if you're sort of if you're a Republican. And for a lot of these guys, thanks to a combination of polling and the national press, they sort of thought that they were betting on the safe bet, which is that Hillary Clinton will be president. There seems to be some I think I think some papers were predicting like 98 percent chance that Hillary Clinton would let win the election. So for them, it wasn't that much of a risk. Oh, I'm, I'm never Trump. Oh, look, by virtue of the fact I'm, the country agrees with me, et cetera, et cetera. Of course, that didn't come true. And so as a result, a lot of people who bet on the wrong side of that equation are now basically outside of politics because they're sort of not useful now to serve a Trump administration, clearly. You know, you at one point, you had 122 supposed Republican national security leaders who said that they were committing themselves to, quote, working energetically to prevent the election of someone so utterly unfitted to the office. It's pretty hard to come back from that when that's the severity of your statement. And it doesn't sound like a lot of them are even attempting to. They know that they've been chastened by this. They're going to have to sit it out for the next four to eight years. Right. I also think it, especially in the national security realm, there are a lot of very senior former officials who figure Hillary is pragmatic enough and centrist enough on foreign policy. And it really is a, a product of the uh, having been secretary of state. But even before yeah. that, when she was in the Senate, was trying to align herself with the foreign policy establishment, the establishment, the, the smart people on foreign policy. I think some former officials, even from Republican administrations, and that's where you get some of these never Trump Republicans signing. And this is not the never Trump journalist. I'm talking about never Trump government officials right the national security right. people that are saying well we you know we don't think he's fit and we don't want to work for him and we don't think that he should get the job this to me is kind of like well if you resign from an administration because you thought it was abusing its power right before an election and then that administration won re-election i don't think you get to show up and say i know i resigned on principle before but i mean times have changed guys well you know the posture of especially the never Trump republicans was always kind of curious to me because they started so early on that they were just going to be outright opposed to the guy no matter what. And my view on this was if you think that he's actually politically inexperienced, which he clearly is, or, or policy inexper- has an experience in policy, why not try and influence somebody who seems to be a likely contender for the office? And as it went on, and it became more and more clear that he was going to become the nominee. And ultimately, as it went on and he got a, was elected president, I, I just always thought that anybody who had a disagreement with Donald Trump over his policies – should have been just trying to inform the guy, be like, look, he's uneducated in this particular area. Let's educate him. There's a body of research that our think tank has produced, for instance. Why not put it in front of him or attempt to influence him in a positive direction? And there was just a lot of, there was just a lot of sort of 
um, public displays of distaste rather than attempts at trying to inform the guy. I can just speak from my own perspective on this. If the Trump administration wanted me to come in at a senior level at the NSC or something along those lines, which this is not going to happen, it's like saying, you know, if I get drafted in the NFL. But I'm just pointing out, I would do it because I think that they need people that can do the job and know what the heck they're doing and talking about in the government. It's still our government, whether people like Trump or not, right? This is the mechanism of executive power that is going to be in place. So, but I was never, never Trump, and I wasn't a Trumper either. But those who signed their name to this, I think especially those who thought maybe they would get in to a Clinton administration, even as former Republican, you know, they're people that make the crossover. Gates, uh, I'm not sure if Hayden technically, I think he was just under Bush. But there have been some people that are kept over administrations. Maybe maybe uh, we'll have to see what happens with with um, some of the picks that they currently have going through uh, in the Senate. But nonetheless, Mm -hmm. I also wanted to, to ask you about the coverage of the inauguration. Uh, do you think there's going to be a lot of do you think there's going to be a lot of shenanigans? Is stuff going to get out of hand? Is it going to get violent? There's some early reporting of it, but I wonder if it's just more hyperventilating about nothing. I'm not sure it's totally hyperventilating, especially because some of the plain protesters are calling themselves anarchists. I mean, these guys are not coming in to foment sort of peaceful debate. This is I mean, there's genuinely people who've already they don't want to give a lecture on the mall about Jeffersonian democracy. I'm shocked. Yeah, precisely. No, they're, they're already, they've already promised lawlessness, and as a result, it doesn't take that many people committing lawlessness to cause some chaos, and that includes plans to supposedly block the ingress routes into Washington, D.C. Um, you know, if you've ever gone to D.C., uh, you'll know that there are a couple places where, I mean, just bridges across the Potomac that would be easy pinch points to create a lot of havoc and traffic, and those guys have already suggested that they have some intention of doing that. Um, I think, yeah, you lie down in a few choice places on the beltway, uh, as you know, Vince, and and you'd bring D.C. in terms of traffic and movement to its knees. Yeah, and it's already happened. I mean, we saw Black Lives Matter protesters cross 395 a couple years ago and create havoc uh, just by virtue of of doing a traffic protest, which was crippling. So it could happen. And I think the National Secret Service is a national security event. They're running security for the entire city, then working with all the agencies. And they're going to do their best to ensure the various levels of security from everything from the, you know, the, pre- the dignitaries who are there, the president-elect, of course, um, and then beyond that, the people who are inside the security perimeter and attending the, the inauguration. And then outside of that, who knows? It's very difficult to, to stop someone from creating a bit of chaos. Our hope is, of course, that um, things go really smoothly. But there are people that are hoping to detract from this and, and people who are very upset about the election of Donald Trump. You at the Daily Caller are but a few blocks away from the White House. I've very, uh, very kindly been taken through your office. You guys are right there. So I, I know that you yeah. are, are going to feel whatever's happening down in the inauguration down in D.C. for all of this. You'll be right in the thick of it. Are, are you following any groups in particular or is there anything that's, that's uh, especially troubling about some of the reporting you guys are seeing about what's going to happen on inauguration? Only, like I said, only that the the anarchist groups have actually heard rumors of things like you know cementing their arms in PVC pipes to make sure that they can create human barriers, but just ridiculous things. Um, you know, we've got the women's march that happens the day after the inauguration that we've been paying attention to. One of the more interesting storylines from that is that there was actually a pro-life feminist group who was signed on as a participating member of this women's march, 
Well, they've been booted now because they're pro-life. The group has decided that no pro-life women are actually permitted to identify with this March on Washington, which is the most hilarious, exclusive thing that could possibly happen for a group that's supposed to be inclusive, and that's what they're supposedly marching for. But no, you can't be pro-life and be a part of Women's March on Washington, apparently. So if you are uh, someone who believes you're a woman and are transitioning, you're welcome at the Women's March. But if you are a woman who is pro-life, you're not welcome at the Women's March. Women's Definitely. March, yeah, um, you've got to be should... you've got to identify as you've got to identify as a woman and you've got to support abortion. Those are the, them's the rules. Follow them. I also want to ask you about the inaug- I mean, the uh, confirmation uh, fights that some say are looming right now are any of these uh, we've got what um betsy devos representative tom price and steve mm-hmm. mnuchin uh are, are any of these you think going to get particularly contentious i don't think i i mean the most contentious hearings that we sort of predicted were the ones that took place last week and was Rex Tillerson and jeff sessions these other names you know especially given the fact that republicans had run the table here and don't and won't really have a problem uh, getting the votes to get anybody through. It seems like whatever flourishes we're going to see inside the nomination uh, hearing isn't really not going to change the outcome. All these guys, I think, will make it through. The question mark that I had was on Rex Tillerson because Marco Rubio was expressing his distaste with him. But Rubio, who we still don't know how he's going to vote, would need to get the support of two other Republicans in order to stop the tiebreak vote from Mike Pence, right? So he would have had to get somebody like Lindsey Graham and John McCain. Well, in the last 24 hours, John McCain has said that he's leaning towards Rex Tillerson now. So it seems unlikely that even Tillerson's going to be stopped, and he was the most likely to face problems if Marco Rubio could could, could marshal some support against him, and it, that doesn't seem like it's going to happen. Anything else you're working on in the Daily Caller you want to direct people to? Just giving Vince the floor here in the Freedom Hut. Sure, of course. It's tonight from 7 to 10 p.m. Eastern time. If you want to jump on on Facebook and check out the Daily Caller's Facebook page, we are going to be running Facebook Live interviews with a ton of great guests because we're uh, uh, getting ready for the inauguration. We're sort of having a Welcome to Washington event this evening. And in the process, uh, we'll be speaking to a bunch of people. Um, Let me see here. I'm pulling up my list right now. Of of the confirmed guests, you know, the Heritage Foundation is, is really involved in writing, is going to be involved, I think, in writing many of the country's policies going forward. Because, again, like I said, there's sort of a policy that Senator Jim DeMint runs the Heritage Foundation, and he'll be sitting with us live. The head of the House Freedom Caucus will be sitting with us, Representative Mark Meadows. Can they keep government limited in the age of Trump? We'll be asking him. Uh, Roger Stone, of course, the infamous Roger Stone, he'll be sitting with us as well and, to, and talking. Foster Freeze, he's a Republican mega donor and one of Trump's biggest supporters. And then uh, we may have some surprise guests from the inauguration and the Trump administration. We're still working out some of the details. But from 7 to 10 p.m. tonight on Facebook, check out the Daily Caller's Facebook page. I promise it'll be interesting. And we'll ask very Daily Caller-esque questions. Vince, how, by the way, we've been asking this. I know I like to say Colleganese because, you know, it's that's the Italian pronunciation. How do you say right. your name? I'm sorry. Well, the family says it Colonnese. I know we say it incorrectly, but we've all sort of just said Colonnese throughout the years. So that's the one we go by. That's our, okay, colonnades. From now on, we'll do col- we'll do colonnades until you tell me that. This is the way we filter out telemarketers. Actually, there you go. All right, <laughs> Vince Colonnades of the Daily Caller. Great to have you, sir. He's the executive editor there. Check out the latest at dailycaller.com. Vince, have a uh, a safe and enjoyable inauguration. Talk to you soon.
It's going to be great. Thanks, Buck. And team, uh, phone lines are open here, 888-900-3393. Don't leave me alone in the hut. I'm in here solo right now. Give me a call. Be right back. This is the Buck Sexton Show. On the Blaze Radio Network. Dispensing the truth. This is Buck Sexton. On the Blaze Radio Network. Well, when we're going to bring the country together, when we're going to try to find a voice of reason and wisdom, when we need somebody whose credibility is beyond reproach, whose wisdom needs no explanation or celebration from me, of course, of course the American people turn to Al Sharpton. This is what he had to say on his, was it on MSNBC or I don't know where he said it. He was on TV and this is what he said about Trump and legitimacy and the election play it. There's no question that the process that elected him was not legitimate. When you look at the now evidence from the intelligence agencies that there was the influence from the Russians, clearly the process has a serious questions about it. I remember, because it was but a few months ago, when there was this frenzy about whether Donald Trump would accept the results of the election, and by saying that he would have to see what they were, he was undermining democracy. Now you have, and look, Al Sharpton, while you and I may not take him seriously, was a Democrat presidential candidate, uh, is treated with reverence by the entire Democrat establishment, is treated with reverence by most of the media, so this isn't, we're not finding some random internet troll. We're going to a celebrated prominent Democrat with Al Sharpton, and he's now saying that the whole process was not legitimate. I remember when the initial reports came out about Russia hacking Podesta, and and by the way, I shouldn't even say that, when the media started to seize upon this, to create more out of this, which was after Hillary lost, of course. I was one of the last times. I don't. Th- I don't know if I'll ever be back on uh, some of the panels they used to have me on at CNN because I think they know now that that I am a a free agent. Uh, that they will be dealing with a different kind of participant in those debates. Perhaps it'd be more interesting for all the viewers, but there is an agenda over there, and I don't fit into it. Uh, that nobody was saying it was illegitimate. We just needed bipartisan investigation. Do you remember that? You can go back and see it. You can see the most prominent national security reporters and journalists and pundits in the country who are left or center left, which is really the same thing. You can see them all saying that this was about a bipartisan investigation. This is about national security. It wasn't about delegitimizing Trump. I said, no, no, this really is. First, you want to establish a, 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 a an exaggerated fact pattern or a falsified fact pattern, and then you want the conclusions to flow from it. But this is the conclusion you're hoping people will draw. Now they openly say it. Now it's out there. So we all knew this was coming. This is why I was fighting back against responding to intelligence community leaks, because the leaks were the, the, the thing about some of the early leaks. They allowed the, the Democrats to construct as 
damaging a narrative as they want because it was, well, we've just heard this from an unnamed source. We'll have to see how truthful it is. But let's assume it's truthful, and then they just run with it. You've seen BuzzFeed and, in its own way, CNN get in on this game. I think more people have come over to my side of this, by the way, including on the right, that CNN reporting on the inclusion of an unsourced, unclassified document in an intelligence briefing is only news insofar as the implication is that it must be real and important then because they weren't in that room, so they don't know and they can't verify anything. So it's only news because the insinuation is that this means that there's something to it. But Sharpton saying that the process that elected Trump was not legitimate. You've had many others going on TV recently and saying it was not legitimate. This is this is a, a forcing a real political crisis in this country if they continue because what is not permissible in a, in a in a US where the president is not really the president this takes us down a very dangerous path and they want to take us down this path it seems those who are saying this is just like Obama no opposing someone's political agenda is not the same as delegitimizing the election and the power that the commander-in-chief wields in and of itself. That's not the same thing. And it should also be noted that Barack Obama came into office with incredibly high approval ratings because of the media construct of how great he was and everything, but I digress. With both houses, uh, or with both sides of the Congress in Democrat hands. And nobody was saying that he wasn't really the president. Those were saying he wasn't born in this country, we're a fringe minority, and nobody was saying that the election was a sham or a scam. This is very different. And people who try to draw an equivalency are, once again, either liars or morons. It's a false equivalency. This is uncharted territory. When you have the entirety of the media industrial complex stating or insinuating, stating or implying that Donald Trump, who is about to become president officially, is not really the president. This is going to lead to absolute disaster down the line, uh, politically and hopefully not more than that, uh, based upon what they're saying. You know, rhetoric has power. Rhetoric matters, and they know it. More coming. The Buck Sexton Show on the Blaze Radio Network. Team, we haven't gone deep on national security in a little bit, so let's get into it with a buck brief. You are entering the Blaze Threat Ops Center. This is a secure space. All outside comms are down. Prepare to receive the buck brief. Michael Pregent joins us now. He's an adjunct fellow at the Hudson Institute. He's a senior Middle East analyst and a former adjunct lecturer for the College of International Security Affairs. Uh, he is executive director of Vets Against the Deal, and uh, you can learn more about him at Hudson.org. Michael, great to have you. Hey, thanks for having me, Buck. How are you? 
Good. Uh, we wanted you to update us. We haven't talked about Mosul, I think, once in the new year so far. What is going on with the Iraqi government's efforts to retake that city from the Islamic State? Well, we'll start with the contrast between what the Iraqi government is saying and what U.S. the U.S. commander on the ground is saying, and that's General Townsend. Um, the Iraqis are saying they can liberate Mosul in three months, and U.S. commanders are saying it's going to take two years. I would go with the U.S. commanders. Um, there's been uh, there's been some some movement on the east side of Mosul, but the Iraqi security forces temporarily hold about a sixth of the city, and uh, they're doing it with the federal police. And the Iraqi federal police are heavily controlled by one of Iran's premier militia groups, that's the Barter Corps, and they are not the right force to secure and hold territory in East Mosul or, or West Mosul, for that matter. And so the, the, this whole operation is supposed to wrap up or supposed to be completed in terms of the, the clear, not necessarily the whole part of it, by when? I mean, do we, do we have any real sense of that? Well, I think the sense, the sense that I have right now, just based on talking to people and based on visiting the area, is that things have slowed down. U.S. military commanders are in no rush to do too much in Mosul right now because there's a new national security team coming in. Very happy about General Mattis coming in because Mattis will give the U.S. military the resources it needs to actually defeat ISIS. And both General Mattis and General Flynn have stated that the, the most important component in defeating a Sunni terrorist army like ISIS is with Sunni manpower and Sunni intelligence, two things that have not been drawn upon since the beginning of this operation in 2014 to clear ISIS out of Iraq. And it looks like they are going to be in what kind of a position politically in Iraq? When, when the dust settles here, is this a big win for the Abadi government? Is this going to result in sectarian squabbling over what remains in and around Mosul and its environs? Where do you see all that going? Well, there's, there are elections in 2018. So if Mosul is cleared by then and we continue to use this low benchmark for what success looks like, that's rubbling a city, exiting a population, and declaring ISIS defeated, then they stand to do well in, in elections in Baghdad in the Shia areas. So that would be good for the Abadi government. What's good for the Abadi government is not necessarily good for Iraq. Um, the majority of the country is Shia until you get north of Baghdad. Then it becomes majority Sunni. And there are not Sunni forces being built to keep the next form of ISIS out to defeat this current version of ISIS. So I, I'm less optimistic. I think that ISIS, I think it's about two years. And I think defeating ISIS needs to be uh, drawn the lessons of the surge need to be used here. You, you can't defeat ISIS unless the people are empowered to reject it, meaning the Sunni people of Iraq, and, and those efforts haven't been made yet. If I could get you some time sitting down in the Oval Office with uh, the Trump, soon-to-be Trump administration, just a matter of days here, and the national security uh, advisor Flynn and, and some of the top military, uh, top military brass on Iraq, what would you want to what would you want to say to them? What would you tell President? We call him President Elect for a couple more days. Uh, right. Soon to be President Trump about what the U.S. policy, what U.S. posture should be in Iraq in 2017 and beyond. Well, the first thing I would recommend is that we slow down the Mosul operation and make it an intelligence-driven operation, meaning that we recruit Sunni sources, we build a Sunni force using 
uh, embedding U.S. advisors and special operations and intelligence with those assets and have them take the city back from ISIS. Again, you have one million Sunnis in Mosul. 300,000 of them are military-aged males. There are four to 6,000 ISIS fighters. There's probably less now since these operations began. This is the perfect time to slow it down, make it an intelligence-driven operation, empower Sunnis from Mosul to take it back by making them collectors, the eyes and ears, and then putting them back into the Iraqi military uh, where they can actually uh, hold, secure, and reject the next version of ISIS. And how's it going on the Syrian side of the border? I'm sure that that must come into play when we're talking about Mosul. We know that the, the connection across the border into Syria was something that they tried to sever between ISIS, ISIS in Mosul and ISIS over on the Syrian side and in Raqqa, their de facto capital city. Is, is there real progress as you see it being made against ISIS in Syria too? And, and how does that affect what the Iraqis think is possible for stabilizing the north of the country, including Mosul, going forward? Well, as we look at Syria, we, you know, we're, the United States is going to be invited in to discussions with Russia, Iran, Assad, and Turkey. Instead of us leading this effort, we are actually being invited in as a participant. So that's very telling about the Syria situation. There's a lot of uh, there's there's a lot of friction between Turkey and the United States when it comes to arming uh, the Kurds, the YPG, to to fight ISIS. When YPG leadership and some other Kurdish elements that are opposed to to Turkey are suggesting that after ISIS they turn their guns on Turkish forces. So that's an issue. So this all benefits ISIS as the United States, Russia, Iran, and Assad um, work to stop the the uh, indiscriminate targeting of Sunni civilians in Syria. ISIS continues to hold territory in Raqqa and Deir ez-Zor and continues to be able to move forces, unfortunately, into Iraq. So there is a lot that needs to be settled. And the one thing I would tell the Trump administration is that Russia, Iran, and Assad are not targeting ISIS. They're targeting the Sunni population in Syria. And Russia is not, has not proven itself an ally against, uh, in the fight against ISIS at this point. Mattis would say as that a as former well. military intelligence officer, Mike, what do you think about U.S. U.S. diplomacy with Russia under a Trump administration? Where should, how do you see it going and where do you think it should go? Well the, well, the good thing about what Trump has done is with the selection of Madison Flynn, and, you know, even though people say that General Flynn is somehow pro-Russia, and I don't believe that for a second, we both uh, grew up in the Army where our main geopolitical foe was the Soviet Union and then the post-Soviet Union after 1988. So with Madison Flynn there, I think they are very skeptical, skeptical and against Russian aggressions. Uh, I think it's still good at the diplomatic level, State Department and with the president to, to do outreach with Russia as long as your secretary of defense and your intelligence uh, directors and, and those involved in national security <clears throat> that look at Russia as an adversary uh, are able to pound the desk. And I believe that that's going to be the case. I like that Trump's not surrounding himself with like-minded individuals. They're not a bunch of yes-men. There will be no echo chamber. Uh, Madison Flynn have proven themselves in the past to be desk pounders when they disagree with a commander-in-chief, so I'm very happy with, with the team of rivals that he's put together so far. 
Michael Pregen is an adjunct fellow at the Hudson Institute. You can learn more about what he does and his uh, writing and analysis at Hudson.org and also M.P. Pregent, P-R-E-G-E-N-T on Twitter. Michael, always great to have you, man. Thanks for calling in. Hey, thanks, Buck. Appreciate it. Uh, team, we're going to be back right on the flip side of this break. Buck Sexton on the Blaze Radio Network. Listening to the Buck Sexton Show only on the Blaze Radio Network. On the Syrian side of the ISIS equation, uh, I wanted to point out that there are some there's some reporting, USA Today and, and others, uh, talking about how the Air Force, U.S. Air Force, is doing these airdrops of weapon ammo and, and equipment to opposition forces in Syria that are trying to close in on. Raqqa, which is the capital of the Islamic State, and I think do we have to keep saying de facto capital? I just I think we can just say capital. I don't think anyone's going to be too offended. Um, but the Air Force is giving them essential supplies, so we're doing airdrops for ground forces, uh, ground forces that are a, a, in part of a U.S.-led coalition of about forty-five thousand fighters, along with U.S. special forces on the ground, and. They're trying to change the composition of this team um, because they want it to be at least more Arab than it's been because it has been a primarily Kurdish venture, and that makes the Turks very uneasy. And you also want the ability to have Arabs patrolling the streets in Arab-majority areas of Syria, once notably Raqqa and the surrounding, uh, surrounding desert. Um, once they take this territory, you want to have an Arab force there to maintain its stability. But I find this all very interesting because here we are in the very last days of the Obama administration. And I think we can all take a deep breath and and enjoy that in one way or another. Just sort of let that sink in. But I recall quite vividly the details of the debates over what should be done in response to the Islamic State, what steps the Obama administration should take. And there was a lot of uh, arrogance with the Democrats that were in the White House and with Obama and his top circle that they weren't the Bush administration. They were going to be smarter than the Bush administration. They weren't going to make foolish mistakes. And, oh, by the way, uh, they also were going to make sure that they avoided a quagmire. I think... Uh, what's his, uh, not, not Jay Carney, I think um, uh, Josh Ernest has come out and said something along those lines in the last day or so, that avoiding quagmire was a primary foreign policy goal of this administration. And that then led to this attitude that, well, we're not going to get too involved in Syria. And I would go on, and I'm going to keep referring to CNN now, I'd go on CNN and say, you know, the administration is late with all of its actions in Syria and minimal with all of its actions in Syria. And that puts everything that it does at a disadvantage vis-a-vis what they could be. And you'd have pseudo-intellectuals that would respond with, oh, but 
what's your what do you think they should do differently? Should we invade Syria? Should we invade Syria? You want to put 150,000 troops in the ground in Syria, U.S. troops? You want to be the ones that carry a folded flag to the family of those who are driving around in armored Humvees and rock? I mean, that was the way the argument always went. And on my side of it, we'd say, well, what about what about building an opposition force, giving it weapons and intervening in that way? What about taking a middle path and you'd have just sneering from from the Democrat Obama enablers and Obama defenders and oh, like that's going to do anything. Oh, like your criticism, the criticisms of the Obama administration were just all partisan when it came to Syria. It was just because we didn't like Obama. It was not based in substance at all. I had former generals coming on CNN. I'd say, look, Obama's Syria policy has been has been pretty unserious. And and I don't know how anyone could make a a, a case otherwise. They, they'd make the case. Oh, well, you know, I was a I was a general, you know, 20 years ago in the Air Force, and I'm going to tell you exactly what's going on now. It's, okay, well, explain to me how they're taking this problem seriously and how they're taking action to stave off a disaster, which has now hit, which is 500,000 people killed. Now Obama's doing, and this is the ultimate point that I wanted to make with all of this, now Obama is doing, while he is in office, exactly what, critics of administration policy in Syria recommended he do years ago. So the Obama administration is doing what administration critics were suggesting they should do back in 2012, 2013, 2014, 2015. And they're just going to do it as they're leaving office. by Obama's little sycophants in the media get to, to get to point out that this is the administration more or less admitting that we were right all along, that their complete hands-off, let's leave this to the U.N. policy, would be a joke if it wasn't so tragic, that the removal of chemical weapons that John Kerry negotiated was meaningless, that chemical weapons were used anyway, that the destabilizing influence of ISIS as a beacon for jihad all over the world was allowed to grow and to spread, and that this has resulted in major terrorist attacks in Europe, and yes, here in America, that will have profound implications for politics in the EU, and I think for here at home as well, but certainly in the EU, along with the refugee crisis that was created by all of this. And now in the last days, we're seeing these reports about the Syrian uh, the Syrian Democratic forces that are, are pulled together along with Kurdish units trying to take back Raqqa from the Islamic State, U.S. providing air cover and airdrops and special forces on the ground alongside them, taking it back piece by piece. We, we were right all along. Or at least I should say the administration is admitting that that was the right idea, but they didn't want to admit it at the time. They didn't want to take the risk. So now they're doing it so they can say they did something, but any difficulties, any casualties, anything that happens will be on the Trump administration as this fight grows and we become more enmeshed. So Obama didn't want a quagmire for himself, but is willing to leave a quagmire for his successor. You're listening to Buck Sexton on the Blaze Radio Network.
Now, spreading freedom across the nation, this is The Buck Sexton Show. Team Buck, welcome to Hour 3 in the Freedom Hut. Best part of my day, hanging out with all of you, so thank you very much for that. Uh, phone lines open, 888-900-3393. Uh, don't leave me here solo. Come on, team, give me a ring. Let's talk about something. And also, please do download the podcast of the show. It's the easiest way uh, for you to share the show with a friend. You are you are the marketing budget. You are the evangelists for the Freedom Hut. It's all of you listening, so please do get one friend to listen. Every time I get somebody sends me a message says, I got a friend to listen, and then he or she really likes the show now, it makes my day. So anytime I get one of those, it makes me really happy. So please, I'd ask that favor from all of you if you don't mind. Okay, Politico.com. Politico is a left-wing site. Not as left-wing, though, as Slate. It's sort of along the CNN line of things, where it's journalism, but they happen to always agree with Democrats. <laughs> that's, that's one way to put it. And you go to Politico.com right now, and you look at its front page, and this really tells you a lot. And this is the sort of thing that you can't conjure up out of nowhere you can't make it up, and I don't think that they even realize they're doing it. But you have the main story is a photo of Donald Trump looking sort of, uh, you could say ominous, looking pensive if you want to be charitable, but ominous might be a better word. Polls show Trump with historically low approval ratings. Majorities of Americans now view Trump unfavorably and also disprove of the way in which Trump has built his incoming administration. Put a pin in that for a second. Three stories below that. Trump, Price, and Hill, GOP, at odds on Obamacare. So strife within the Republican Party on Obamacare. Story next to that. The alt-right comes to Washington. The specter of this vile, racist, alt-right now looming over all of D.C. right when Trump's inauguration's about to happen. What a coincidence. And then Trump noses into one of the world's biggest mergers. Ah, yes, of course. Trump, who cannot be trusted, who's in the pocket of Russia, and who's going to be an authoritarian who picks winners and losers in the market, and his business dealings are going to influence him in undue ways when he is commander-in-chief. This is just the front page of BuzzFeed. Every single story that you see when you go to the front page right now, or, or the, main, the main page, they call it the carousel usually on sites, where they have the big blown-up photos and the big headlines, is anti-Trump. Not, hey, here's something you didn't know about one of Trump's nominees. Not, here's a little background on how inaugurations have gone in the past. And certainly not, anarchists are planning to disrupt disrupt. Trump's inauguration with violence, protests, destruction of property, any of that. No, it's just one story after another to reinforce how terrible Trump is. Back to the main story, that polls show Trump with historically low approval ratings. Media is congratulating itself right now because they've been able to shape perception about an incoming president before he's done really anything of consequence. And they view their ability to make the approval needle go or trend down as evidence, much needed evidence now of their continued importance 
in American public discussion. So they can make Trump look bad even when he hasn't done anything, even when he's not president, and they can change minds in America on that issue. They view that as a victory. They think this is good. Makes them happy. It's laziness here from a lot of journalists and fear. Two things that when you combine them, you get very bad outcomes. Laziness because write an anti-Trump story, you'll get published. Write an anti-Trump story, you'll be fetid by those around you. You'll be celebrated. You'll have people that want to talk about how great your piece is. And then uh, it's based in fear because if you don't do that, you may lose your job. You may be thought of as less by your colleagues. And so this creates an echo chamber effect that's playing out day in and day out without interruption. And you don't have any serious effort by journalists who keep saying they're going to hold Trump accountable and speak truth to power to put forward realistic policies that they want Trump to adopt. You don't have any serious effort to persuade Republicans to take a a center path on a middle road, a middle ground on any major issue the Trump administration will put forward. It's just all the destruction of the Trump administration via character attacks and smears and a relentless, an absolutely relentless drumbeat of Trump is the worst, Trump is the worst, Trump is the worst. And it bothers me in a lot of ways. One of them is that it it factors into how I view things because as I've said to you before, I take the perspective of, well, now I know, I know they're trying to destroy Trump and every story is yet a, is supposed to be yet another piece to add on to the top of the destroy Trump effort. So we know they're trying to they're trying to destroy Trump and anything that I see now is has to at least go through that lens. Which obscures my own judgment in some ways and I, I'm aware of that. Because it starts to force you into this reflexive defensive crouch of oh okay, yet another hit piece on Trump. Yet another character attack on one of his cabinet nominees another story about fake news or the alt-right or this has become an obsession in the media there's nothing else they really want to talk about there are some major policy issues that will affect all of us that we could spend a lot of time on that journalists could be educating the public about could be having a much more fulsome discussion about these issues Washington Examiner, for example, reporting that Trump is eyeing a 10% spending cut and a 20% slash in federal workers. One of the great unspoken policy, looming policy disasters right now, and it's not unspoken as in it never spoken of, but no one's talking about it right now, is that we are spending ourselves into oblivion and we have entitlements that are unsustainable and interest rates will rise and they then servicing the debt will take up a much larger share of, of GDP. And that once that happens, there will be very serious, deleterious effects on the economy. It's just a matter of time. We used to talk about entitlement reform. Remember this under Romney and Ryan? That was one of the fights. And Obama was just, they want to throw grandma off a cliff. They don't want to give her health care. They want to, Romney wants to give people cancer. He has this magic cancer wand that he, you know, because he's such a, a capitalist pig that he waves over people to give them cancer. And it's a horribly 
intellectually dishonest and and gross and gutter campaign that the Obama team ran against Romney. But remember, he was mean to a dog because the dog was in a carrier on the roof of the car or something like that. This is the stuff we learned about Mitt Romney. It was about as clean cut and personally irreproachable a figure as you're going to find in American politics today. But we were talking about debt. There was at least a discussion happening about what this country is facing, that we have unsustainable programs in place, and you have the massive theft of wealth, and I know this is going to upset some of my boomers listening right now, but it's okay, we love you. Just got to call it what it is. A theft of wealth through government hands, they would call it a transfer of wealth, from the young to the old, or younger to older, as a result of economic policies that inflate asset prices, as a result of policies put in place under the great society that are just now, we're starting to see what the full bill will be for the boomer generation with Medicare and Social Security, but that Social Security is more manageable. Medicare is out of the spending is just out of control. It's far too much. And neither Trump nor Obama, nor the Democrats. Nobody wants to touch it. Nobody wants to talk about it. Trump talking about a 10% cut in discretionary spending is worth at least considering as a means of slowing this down. But the real money, as we all know, the real money is in automatic spending. The real money is already uh, in the budget through mandated programs, Medicare, Social Security. And that's what you would have to deal with to put the U.S. on a more sound fiscal footing long term. They don't want to talk about it. They don't care. Neither side is talking about it right now. I don't know if it's going to happen in four years of Trump or eight years of Trump or whoever comes after that, that finally the music will stop and we'll have to deal with this problem. I do find it fascinating, though, that Trump destroying the country has become a a meme now this is a constant refrain the media is hitting it all the time we're always being told about this and we're not focusing on what at one point was a bipartisan concern wasn't necessarily agreement on it that we were heading down an unsustainable path and that the massive transfer of wealth of trillions of dollars that is occurring uh, through the government programs that take care of the more likely to vote older population in this country and Obamacare also as a tra- as a continuation of the transfer of young and healthy to older and sicker. That doesn't get addressed, doesn't get talked about, isn't touched. And the 10% of spending that team, that team Trump may put into effect is going to be fought tooth and nail by Democrats, even though it doesn't really mean that much except for the symbolism of finally cutting back spending. It's not going to save us, not going to change anything, not going to stop anything. And Republicans, keep in mind, couldn't even keep to their own sequester. Right? They, the sequester was a, a decrease in the rise in spending. So this is spending yourself into oblivion less quickly, not even, not even turning the curve in the other direction, just spending yourself into oblivion less quickly and... The GOP balked on that because of the sequester and how it affected military spending. So we, we have seen fiscal discipline from neither side of the aisle. And the Trump team doesn't seem to want to touch any of this stuff. 
and they recognize that it's just unpopular because dealing with reality in this instance is unpopular. This is the one place where Trump's tell-it-like-it-is philosophy didn't come into effect. Right? Trump saying the border is broken, we've got problems with legal immigration, Obama speaks about radical Islam as though it's not a problem or tries to downplay the problem. That was all speaking, that was all telling it like it is. There's none of that happening on entitlements. There's none of that happening on long-term spending. And these budget fights that are going to happen now in D.C. with Republicans in control of the House and the Senate, we're really going to see who we're dealing with on all of this. I think they're going to be happy now that they have control of the government to spend in the way that they see fit. Uh, They're not going to to touch mandated programs. And there may be some transfer of government revenue, which, of course, is just a fancy word, a fancy way of saying your tax dollars, money taken from you under threat of force. Those spending reductions may help pay for Trump's increases for the Pentagon budget. They may shore up some of the tax cuts and might even be used to pay for the wall on the southern border. That's at least what's being said here. It's the Washington Examiner's reporting. Part of this I find very interesting is the possibility of a 20% slash of federal workers. I want to return to that and what that means and how that may be factoring into a lot of what's happening right now on the other side of the break. Team, I'll be right back. You're listening to The Buck Sexton Show on the Blaze Radio Network. So, team, there's this reporting out there that Trump may try to slash 20 percent of federal workers, mostly through attrition and hiring freezes. But you do get into some discussion here of what would be the American deep state. The deep state, of course, refers to the Turkish deep state, which is the permanent military and bureaucracy apparatus considered more powerful even than elected officials, which was certainly true in the past, although in the Erdogan era, not clear that it's quite as true as it had been in Turkey in this country, we tend to think of the deep state as the military-industrial complex, uh, but there's more than that. There's the permanent bureaucracy, the fourth branch of government, as some have called it, and they are a primarily Democrat entity. And so if you're going to start slashing the workforce, the federal workforce, that bureaucracy may lash out and fight back. This then ties in to some of the discussion we've seen about whether the leaks from in the intel community or rather whether leaks about Trump are coming from the intel community or people in Senate Select Committee on Intelligence or from where. It is certainly feasible that there would be leaks from the intel community meant to undermine Trump because there were leaks to undermine Bush in the past. Uh, there, This is often a confusing subject for a lot of people because there were leaks under Obama, but they weren't meant to necessarily undermine Obama. There were either leaks of longstanding programs or there were leaks that had nothing to do with whistleblowing and just people that wanted to hurt the United States government uh, overall. But there were specifically anti-Bush leaks during the Bush administration. And I think that what we're seeing now are, are quite clearly we're seeing now anti-Trump leaks. The bureaucracy leans left. And as I say about Skynet and Terminator, I've told you this many times in the past, it is self-aware. 
And if they really believe that Trump is going to slash 20% of federal workers, then there may be pushback in ways that involve dirty pool, in ways that involve underhanded politics and the politicization of what are supposed to be entirely non-political roles. So that is something to keep an eye on. Also, don't think the Democrats don't know this and aren't aware of the power that the American deep state or the permanent bureaucracy, the fourth branch of government, truly has. You've got President Obama, according to the New York Post here, rushing to fill 100 federal government vacancies in the last few weeks in office. He's put 72 people in federal job openings and nominated another 17 for positions that require Senate confirmation. Um, They include Avril Haines, named a member of the National Commission on Military, National and Public Service. Sarah Hurwitz, a speechwriter for Michelle Obama. So Obama, and and there's many others. Obama is last minute putting people into federal civil service positions, knowing that they are trusted Democrats and knowing that now that they're going to be put in some of these federal roles, it is very hard under civil civil service rules to get rid of some of these people. This is part of the enduring Obama legacy. He stacked the courts and we need not, we need to not for uh, make sure we do not forget about this. He stacked the courts, not including the Supreme court, but he stacked the U S court of appeals and federal federal uh, courts with leftists, and that was why the the Senate Democrats got rid of the filibuster, so that Obama could do that, and he did. And he would nominate, and they would just slam him right through. And they those are lifetime appointments. So the federal bench has been staffed with Obama loyalists, and they're not going anywhere under a Trump presidency, and they're not changing one note. Their tunes are going to be exactly the same. And now there's this effort to slam through regulations and put trusted Democrats into the federal bureaucracy right before Obama leaves. Got to ask yourself, why? whatever happened to the people have spoken, the will of the people, Obama, should, the, the incoming administration should get deference and the respect of... I, I think Obama's intentionally making this as complicated and hard for the Trump administration as they can. There's not. There's only so much they can really do, but I think Obama's speech, his last speech, his last day of the unity he gave in Chicago, all the stuff about making it easier for Trump is really hollow. They're making this as hard as possible. It should also be noted that you know the Clinton version of the transition involves stealing the W's from all the keyboards in the White House. I mean, just a, a childish, stupid, very expensive prank, and it's really not funny to force the White House to waste a lot of time like that's it's, not, it's actually not funny. It was childish and petty and vindictive. That was the Clintons. I think you could say the Obama administration's perhaps a little more subtle and sly about how they're undermining the incoming Republican administration, but there's still an effort underway. Um, okay, team, uh, phones open, 888-900-3393. Buck Sexton here. We'll be back in just a few. The Buck Sexton Show. On the Blaze Radio Network. Work. This is the Buck Sexton Show. 
team, we have a new guest here in the Freedom Hut, Ellie May. Newsmax named her as one of the 30 most influential Republicans under 30. She is a YouTube sensation who's most famous for her fun, informative, top 10 reasons I'm not a Democrat. She's a writer and video contributor to conservative heroes Dinesh D'Souza and Wayne Dupree. Ellie May joins us now. Thanks for calling in, Ellie. Hey, thanks so much for having me, Buck. All right, so uh, let's let's start with this. You are you are twenty four. You are a conservative writer and uh, and and video, uh, what video blogger, a vlogger is that what we call it, right? So you, you're already in the fight here at at a young age. How'd you how'd you get into this? How'd you find yourself doing conservative commentary? Okay, so it all started actually uh, with me asking my mom about the Obama phones. I asked her why she was against them because. To me, this was about three years ago. And to me, uh, getting a free phone for someone who needed a job sounded like a good idea. But she actually told me, you know, it's the taxpayers who pay for those phones. And to me, that was just like a mind-blowing concept I didn't understand. Ever ever since I was little growing up, I, I thought the government made its own money. And I know it sounds kind of stupid, but I never realized that the taxpayers funded absolutely everything. And so the concept of taking money out of someone's paycheck uh it seemed unjust to me so i i just started uh my gear started turning and then she introduced me to rush limbaugh and that's when things really started to change and uh it was crazy (laughs) because to me yeah everything he was saying challenged like everything i ever believed in for politics and and whatnot so i felt like i just had to start speaking up because i felt like young people didn't really uh, have this perspective in their life. So, yeah, I just started speaking up about it, and things went from there. So, uh, were, you, were you somebody who, in school then, did you have to deal with some of the, the craziness of the, the liberals that have overtaken the education system, or did you keep it out of the classroom? Um, I think, for the most part, I uh, keep it out of the classroom, even at work, you know. I try to stay low-key, um, and I've kept a lot of friends that way, actually. But, of course, you know, I subtly will say things uh, without shoving conservatism down anyone's throat. But um, I actually worked with a kid who uh, was a full-on Bernie supporter, and then he started learning about taxes, and he turned into a libertarian. So I've had some very interesting experiences with people, and uh, it's been great, honestly. So, Do you feel like there are a lot of... Uh, are you in contact with a lot of, of your peers, so people in their early and mid-20s, who are excited about a Trump presidency? Or are you hearing from a lot of pro-Trump millennials? Uh, or are you are you even... Is there another designation now? What comes after millennial? But anyway... Or do you feel like there's more of a of a group out there that supports those things than the media is willing to talk about? Uh, I have a lot of Trump-supporting friends. One of my best friends, actually, is full-on for Trump, always has been. And so I would say most of my close friends uh, are conservative, but a lot of them do support Trump. Uh, like I said, you know, I work with people who are more left-leaning, and I, I try not to get into politics too much with them. Um, but, yeah, most of my friends love Trump, you know, young people. And uh, definitely the media would never tell you that. But there's a lot of them out there. So it's it's encouraging that there are conservatives. What are you what are you hoping once once the Trump administration gets going here? Donald's going to get sworn in in just a couple of days. Uh, what are you hoping to see them do in the first hundred days? Um, you know, I'm just excited to give him a chance 
in general. I have been pretty critical of Donald Trump. I was for Ted Cruz. And uh, so I will just uh, say that I hope he sticks to most of his promises. Some of the things that he's promised I don't necessarily even agree with. So I hope, uh, you know, with Republicans in control that a lot of stuff gets done in our favor, and I think that it will. So. And for those in media right now who want to reach the the 25 and under conservative set or the 30 and under conservative set, what do you think the keys are? I mean, I know you're on YouTube and you're building up a following there. You're a young conservative. Newsmax has named you one of the uh, 30 most influential Republicans under 30. Congrats again on that. Thank How do you, you. think Thank conservatives can can reach the uh, can reach the, the <laughs> I'm going to sound like the oldest man on the planet here can reach the youth? <laughs> Um, I honestly think that it is important to kind of uh, take advantage of the few celebrities who do support conservatism and, you know, quote them once in a while, like Vince Vaughn even, and, uh, you know, roll with that because sadly celebrities do appeal to young people, maybe not to me, but to people who might not be so interested in politics. They trust celebrities. While they shouldn't, they do. So, you know, that's always a good tool. Um I would say keeping things short and simple. That's kind of why I did, you know, top 10 reasons was because it's short, simple to the point, And it's always just kind of funny, not super deep in a language that young people can understand. That isn't using big terms that we're so used to using uh, that politically involved people are, you know, familiar with. You have to kind of speak to, you know, your audience, the appropriate audience, and just speak in a way that they can understand. So... All right, Ellie, where should people listening, if they want to see more of your videos and, and the work that you're up to as a young conservative, where should they go? Uh, you can check out Dinesh D'Souza's channel, actually, or you can go on Twitter at E-L-L-Y-S-A underscore M-A-Y-E. And that's where I'll be. All right. Ellie May, congrats again on your 30 under 30 in Newsmax. Uh, appreciate you joining. All the best of luck to you, and we'll talk to you soon. Thank you so much. All right, team, we'll be back right after the break. The Buck Sexton Show. Discover more at theblaze.com slash radio. The Blaze Radio Network. Listening to the Buck Sexton Show. I came across this in my read uh, read in this morning when I was looking for stuff to talk about today on the show and stories. And I this huge alligator in Florida. I don't know if you've seen this video. I, it's it's a cool video. I feel like it might, is it real or fake? I, I feel so dumb on some of these things because people oh it's so obviously fake. I was like really is it obviously fake? I'm not good at the video editing knowing if the video editing has changed things or not I, there can be really big alligators they say it's 12 feet long that doesn't sound unthinkably long to me saltwater crocodiles for realsies can get to be uh 20 25 feet long uh, in, in australia they do look like dinosaurs they're terrifying they're huge uh but i think an alligator that's 12 feet long doesn't sound completely beyond the pale there's this video though you see this thing it's Big, big. They have some big gators down in Florida. So I don't know if any of you have thoughts. Maybe we'll put it on Facebook. You tell me, is real or fake? And what do you think? Any of you seen an alligator this big before? 
There's probably a, there's probably like an alligator specialist in our audience. We could have an alligator specialist come on the show sometime. Uh, somebody who really knows about gators. Although anytime I think of somebody who's a gator specialist, just because I'm a Yankee from New York City, I was thinking it's going to be a guy who's like a guarantee. Oh yeah, in the swamp we look for the gator. You know, sort of Cajun stuff. Um, was that was that a Montreal or Cajun? It sounds the same to me, I guess, in my ear. I, I should probably separate out these accents. All right, I've got some callers. They're going to save me from my nonsense here. John in Pennsylvania, you're on the Buck Sexton Show. Shields high. Hi, Buck. How you doing? I'm right. How are you? To, uh, what you were say- I was listening to what you were saying about um, impacting the, the courts. Uh, what, this is not something I came up with on my own. I heard it on another show. Actually, it's a show in the morning. He talked to a couple of the congressmen about it. What I heard they were talking about doing was splitting the Ninth Circuit, um, shipping some of those people like to the border and places where they need like more, uh, more judges. And, and based on the rules that uh, Harry Reid set up, they should be able to uh, actually basically pack another court uh, the same with uh, Republicans. And on that same vein, uh, one thing I wanted to say was that I think one of the reasons why these people are going so bug nuts. Is because I think Harry, what Harry Reid did with uh, it was kind of like one of those sets in volleyball where he kind of locked it up there for the person to come behind and smash it over, which was supposed to be Hillary, and uh, so they could get like every liberal wet dream they ever dreamed of to, to go through. And of course, Trump ended up getting the ball, and I think that's making them extra crazy, knowing that. So that was my that was my two cents anyway. <laughs> All right. Uh, well, yeah, I, th- I think there was an assumption. John, that Hillary Clinton was going to be the president and therefore would be able to continue Obama's progressive march and also would benefit from things like the elimination of the filibuster. Keep in mind, there's a you know, there's reason to believe the Democrats thought they were going to take the Senate, too. And then you might have been in a position where they figure, let's just go for it. We get Hillary with executive orders and we also remove we make it a straight up or down vote in the Senate. We change Senate rules so there's no filibuster even for Supreme Court nominees. And then they pack the Supreme Court with progressive loyalists. And now it's now the permanent bureaucracy and the courts are all locked in for good. And so elections matter a whole lot less. We I think we've quickly gone from Trump uh, Trump's victory or rather from from Hillary's defeat to Trump is imperfect as a conservative candidate or Trump is a very flawed candidate from the perspective of conservative values without spending enough time on we really dodged something nasty with hillary clinton being the next president of the united states and they were teeing it up for her her. and that was the expectation i heard him list list off all the people that that she was going to bring in in her cabinet and it was a who's who of crazy progressive liberal people oh yeah oh we we were going to be we were going to be marinating in a progressive stew for the next four most likely the next eight years with no escape and at least with trump no matter how much as a republican or a conservative or both or whatever no matter how much you hate trump at least there's some hope that it will be better that he'll be better than that there was no hope of hillary clinton being better than that she was going to give you exactly what was promised to the progressive left uh, you're going to have all the worst stuff. You're going to have the big government, the divisiveness, the um, identity politics, the sort of progressive, anti-Christian, uh, I would say anti-American ethos. And you'd also have the crony capitalism and the deal-making behind closed doors and the green energy boondoggles and all that other crap, too. I mean, that's what you were going to get with Hillary. No question, no ifs, ands, or buts. 
So at least with Trump, I mean, I, I'm more hopeful than this, but at least with Trump, there's a chance. This was sort of my thinking. This is my thinking all along. Um, so that's where I am on that. Keep up the good work. Hey, man. Thank you, John. I appreciate it. Shields high. Jim in Maryland. Do we lose him? Jim, Jim in Maryland, we were so excited to have you on. And in the span of me taking one call, you decided to bail on us. We still heart you, Jim, but we thought we were going to get the chat. All right. So uh, someone tell me if that alligator is real or not. I'm, I, I think I'm going to go real on the alligator. Also, I don't, <laughs> I'm not somebody who really watches football much. Uh, I watch it a little bit with my brothers and my dad sometimes just because it's a, you know, man, it's man time. Uh, we, we do that. Um, ladies in my family, mom and sister, tend more towards the Real Housewives end of the spectrum in terms of their viewing choices. They like the Real Housewives. They like some of those Bravo shows and Dance Moms. Um, the Sexton brothers and dad like football a whole lot more. And uh, New England Patriots coach Bill Belichick is dismissing comments. I see this on a C- one of the CBS affiliates here. Made in a controversial Facebook Live video posted by Antonio Brown. And sports writer Ryan Hannibal tweeted Monday that Belichick made light of the video saying, I'm not on Snap. I don't even know what's... Uh, just to be clear, I don't even know what was said in the... Do you know... Uh, Shaman, do you know what was said in this uh, video by Antonio Brown? Any, no? I don't either. Okay. I don't know if you're. I, I don't know if you're a football fan or not. I feel like everybody knows this stuff except for me. But I just like the, I. I like this. I like this part of it uh, that Bilicek said that he's not on Snapface and Instant Chat. He wrote quote, or he said, "I'm not on Snapface and all those. I'm not too worried what they put on Instant Chat." I, I feel. I feel. I feel like I'm a little more in touch now. I feel like I'm a little cooler, a little, little more hip, because at least I know you don't call it Snapface and Instant Chat. Oh, man, that's awesome. Uh, Belichick went to uh, Middlebury, I think, which is uh, similar to my college, one of these small New England schools. I think he played football for them, but the football team at those schools is smaller than the football team at a lot of good-sized Texas high schools, I think. But I, I don't understand. I've said this before, the, this this Snapchat phenomenon. I, I don't get it. I don't know why putting filters on your face is so entertaining or amusing. Uh, Ms. Molly likes Snapchat. I, I'm not a Snapchat person. She's tried to explain it to me. She's even given me tutorials on Snapchat, and I find myself still thinking, "What? What? I, I don't. I don't get it. Why is this a thing that people like to do?" I'm mean, even some of the major news sources and news organizations out there are really trying to build out their Snapchat channels, and I just I find myself sitting around saying, "Why is this even a thing? Why does this get people?" particularly fired up one way or the other. I, I don't know. Uh, Snapchat is probably valued at a tremendous amount. I don't even know off the top of my head. But this is the way it's all going in the future. We're going to be watching the news on, on as, as Belichick says, snap face and instant chat. <laughs> I like that. Snap face. I'm going to start calling it snap face. It's like when people used to say the interwebs, you know, the uh, connected cathode tubes cathode ray tubes of the of the of the interwebs uh, i gotta get i gotta get more technologically savvy maybe i'm gonna start watching some youtube videos on on how to learn how to do things on Snapface and instant chat so we'll see how all that goes i will be watching i think the football this weekend maybe we'll talk a little bit about that on friday just just because we'll mix it up 
Your thoughts on today's show, team, always appreciated. Would love to hear from you on anything and everything you got in mind, both things that we've talked about and things you'd like us to talk about. If you have any guest suggestions, please do feel free to uh, reach out anytime. It'd be great to chat with you about that. And we've got a lot of show the rest of the week. Got the inauguration coming up. So, team, I'll see you in the Freedom Hut tomorrow and every day this week. Shields high. The Buck Sexton Show. Only on the Blaze Radio Network.